Good morning, church. I'm happy to be here, and uh, I'm so glad for our Sabbath school lesson today. Uh, thank you, Pastor Colin, and participants, because when I sit in a class, it's good to hear from other people, but you know what? When people talk, I feel like God is talking to me, and that's what happened today, so thank you so very, very much. That's what church is all about. Um, I'm going to... Um, talk to you today about something which is an observation that I made about 10 years ago. And now I'm going to just get, are we working on the screen there? Yeah, that's looking good. Um, the, the lesson, the, the title of my message is Spiritual Lessons from the Financial Crash. And I'm going to pray in a minute, but what I observed about 10 years ago when I was working with a group of pastors in Vancouver we are trying to reach out to the people of Vancouver with an outreach message. And we got together as a pastors. Pastor Manuel Silva was part of that at one time, and, and Colin Griffiths, as I recall, as well. And we wanted to do something that made a difference to the people of Vancouver. And so before I talk about that, I'd like to pray, and I want to get right into it. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for all of the reminders that you are great, you are holy, you are kind, you are compassionate, and you are the all in all. And Lord, even though we can't see you with the naked eye, we believe you're here. You're in the uh, sanctuary with us, and you're on the computer screens with those people who are watching from afar. Lord, speak to us. Help us to know it's you that we're listening to, and and Lord, personally, get me out of the way and just let you talk to your people today. In the name of Jesus, amen. Um, what happened was we asked a question. And that question we asked was, I asked the pastors, could you please ask the people in your congregation to ask their non-Christian friends if you had a chance to be with God for one hour in a room where you could see him face to face, what question would you ask God? So they did that. And so the questions were written out or emailed to me, and I collected all these questions of what our non-Christian friends would ask God if they had a chance. And some of them were ridiculous, and some were sublime. Some were irreverent because they didn't believe in God, and, and some were confusing. But you know, the, the preponderance of the particular type of questions that came in went something like this. If God loves us so much, why does he allow us to suffer? Most of the questions were related to that sort of thing thing, that, that theme. How could a God be a God of love and then allow all the suffering? And it wasn't maybe a year ago, I just read a, a, a survey that came out for the younger generation, the, the millennials, not the youngest, but a younger generation than me, that was the big number one barrier to belief in God, is why suffering? It doesn't, it doesn't compute, it doesn't exist in, in their minds at all. And so, we have, as a group, as a Seventh-day Adventist group of people, we actually have answers 
to these kinds of things. And, and I'll give you what normally we say, and then I'm going to add to it for this particular message today. We normally say this, and this is in a sense a, a, a summary of a thousand books on the subject. We normally say, number one, God is love. Number two, love allows choice. Number three, choice allows sin. And number four, sin brings suffering. Now, there is the oversimplified logic summarizing a thousand books on the subject. God is love. Love allows choice. Choice allows sin. And sin brings suffering. Now, so we can therefore say that a loving God can allow suffering and still be loving because he allows choice. Now, this is probably not new to you if you've been around the Adventist church for any period of time. This is kind of the thinking, and, it's, and I think it's good thinking, but it, it's not complete. There, there's, still, there's still something we need to, to think about. And so here are four reasons that I can think about as I read through the scriptures and think about my own life that why we suffer. Number one, we suffer because we're reaping what we sowed. You know, if we eat highly refined food, sugar, salt, and fat for 40 years, we just might suffer. Heart attack, stroke, whatever it may be. And we can't blame God because God didn't want that for us. We reap what we ourselves sow. That could be one reason why we're suffering. If we make a decision financially that has repercussions down in years to come and we're suffering financially, we're reaping what we sow. That's not God doing that to us. That's us doing it to ourselves because we are foolish in making decisions and spending money. So that's one reason for suffering, but there's others as well. One is God is training you and it feels like suffering. Think of a, of a hockey coach, a football coach, a basketball coach. He's working you hard. He's making you run the laps. And he's pushing you. And it feels like the coach is not being very nice. But what's the coach doing? He's preparing you for the big game. It's going to happen next week. It's going to happen maybe next month. And that's what God does with us. He knows there's something going to happen to us a month from now. And he's got to prepare for us. He's got to prepare us for that right now. Sometimes that feels like suffering. And a loving God will allow us to feel that because he's preparing for something good in the future. Well, that answers some of the reasons for suffering, but yet there's yet another one. God is showing you off. Have you thought about that one? Think of the book of Job. We often refer to the book of Job. Job went through suffering. He went through suffering. And we know why, because we read kind of like we pulled the curtains back and we saw what was going on, and God is kind of proud of Job. He kind of, it says in the Bible, he's a righteous man. Not very many people in the Bible get that, you know, tag put onto them. Daniel was one. And, and Job is suffering so that other people can see it. 
and look at the strength that, God, that, that Job has in his suffering so that God can say, look, everybody, look over at Job over there. See how he's suffering. Look how strong he is. Look how kind he is. Look how caring he is in front of all, in, in all that suffering. He's got some source of power. And that's what God does to you and me. He asks, he's working through his Holy Spirit. He's working through other people who are looking at you, getting them to look at you, and you are suffering, but yet you're you're a man or a woman of integrity in spite of it all. You still have that source of strength and that, that peace and that serenity in spite of the suffering. And God says, I'm so proud of you. And I'm going I'm to get 10 people to look at you so that they can be inspired by your life. God is showing you off. And that feels like suffering sometimes. You know, I, I brought this, this question up. I used to teach ba- a grade 7, grade 8 Bible class, and I, I was going through this sort of thing with the kids. And we all knew very well that didn't cover all the suffering in the world. Because we're think, thinking of some innocent children, you know, get abused, and, and this doesn't cover all that. So I asked the kids, I asked the children, what do you think? Uh, you know, wh- what else is there? And and they really came up with a, a really good answer. Now, it, it wasn't an answer, but yet it was an answer. And, and, and that answer is something like this. It, it says, God is waiting to finish to get the job right. In other words, he's not done yet. So don't judge God until he's done his job. Then we can judge God and say, God, you are unfair. Whatever, we can label all the accusations against God we want. But wait until he finishes his job first. And then we can judge God, which God kind of knows. He's going to get all this all prepared. It kind of reminds me of the time I came home from school when I was 10 years old. I saw my mom washing the mirror. And it was a big, tall mirror. It was uh, maybe four feet high. And it was a long, tall mirror. And, and she's washing from the mirror from the bottom up to the top. And then I got home from school, and the first thing I said was, Mom, you missed a spot. Do you think my mom appreciated that? <laughs> no, she didn't. She looked at me and almost with hurt, maybe a little bit of anger, but maybe not, but certainly a little bit of hurt. She said, I'm not finished yet. And it made me realize... <laughs> I was judging. I was judging too soon. And that's what God wants us to understand. He says, listen, don't judge me until I'm finished the job. Now, that helps. It helps. But there's still a few things we want to consider. What is God going to do about the suffering that's here in this world now? Now that sin is rampant, and therefore suffering is, is all about us. What does love do without taking away the power of choice? What does love do with the sin that's around us? What would you do, mom and dad, when your daughter and your son sins? You love them. You're not going to kill them. You're not going to disown them. You, you love them. What does love do and still give the power of, of choice? Well, Here's what I like to take a, a look at. 
I was pondering these things a few years ago, and, and I saw PBS do a news documentary. PBS stands for Public Broadcasting System in the United States. And they have a show called Frontline. This was done way back uh, 10 years ago or so. And, and this particular topic was called The Warning. It's a documentary called The Warning. In the midst of the 1990s bull market, that's a market in the business world where people are making a lot of money. It's good times. One loan regulator warned about derivatives dangers. Derivatives are a financial product, which I really don't understand, but they are derived from another financial product, which is derived from another financial product, and, called, and it's called derivatives. That's about all I know about it. It's complicated, but it has to do with the finances based upon other financial things, based upon other financial things, et cetera, et cetera. Some of you know more about that than I do. So one loan regulator warned about the derivatives' dangers and overnight became the enemy of some of the most powerful people in Washington. Her name was Brooksley Bourne. Now, Brooksley Bourne became my hero after I watched that documentary. You can go ahead and find it on the Internet, see if you can watch it too. As I go through the story you may feel like I'm diverging a bit from the sermon, but I'm not. This is part of it. Think of Brooksley Bourne as the Seventh-day Adventist church giving a message to the world in these last days. Now, as far as I know, Brooksley Bourne is not an Adventist. I don't know whether she's a Christian. She seems like it to me. But in, in my mind, there's a parallel between what Brooksley Bourne did and what we are called to do. So let's, let's just proceed a little bit here and get into the story. She was a longtime securities lawyer. She was a lawyer that dealt with um, finances and very good at it. She had a great reputation, and she was appointed by President Bill Clinton in 1996. She was appointed as a chairman of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, and it was the type of organization within the United States government that could have a lot of power when it came to restricting or allowing corporations to do or not do certain things. A lot of power there. Usually the person who was in charge of that particular commission didn't do much with it. But Brooksley Bourne had another idea. Now, at the same time, there was a man named Alan Greenspan who nine years before had been appointed as the world's top banker by Ronald Reagan. It said here in 1987, Ronald Reagan made him the most powerful banker in the world, the chairman of the Federal Reserve. Now, the interesting thing here about that is that Ellen Greenspan believed in free market capitalism. What does that mean? That means you allow the corporations and the companies and the businesses to regulate themselves. And if they make any mistake or errors, the market will correct them on their own. They don't need to be regulated by another authority like the government. That's free market capitalism. Okay? 
Now, meanwhile, uh, Brooksley Bourne, uh, oh, just to let you know, they believe the less regulation, the better. And this is his, um, uh, this is Reuben, Robert Reuben, and he was the Treasury Secretary. He's the man who controls all the tax dollars of the United States. It's a lot of dough. That's like trillions of dollars. He can say he can go here, and he, he, he advises the president on financial policies, all right? So he and Alan Greenspan believe that the less regulation, the better. Allow the corporations freedom to do whatever they want to do. Give loans, whatever they want to do. Now, meanwhile, Brooksley Bourne believed in government regulation. Can you see what's about to happen? All right. Now one doesn't. One does. Now it wasn't long after when Brooklyn Bourne's when when Bourne was appointed that her her philosophy of regulating of restricting companies from doing so much it came into uh, view when Procter and Gamble sued Bankers Trust. Now Procter and Gamble makes toothpaste and about a thousand other products that you probably have used. Okay, Procter and Gamble, all right? Now, meanwhile, let's put it this way. That revealed, when Procter and Gamble sued Bankers Trust, it revealed to the world how bankers took advantage of companies by selling them complicated financial products nobody understood. In a sense, Bankers Trust said, trust me. And they weren't trustworthy. As a matter of fact, uh, there's a record that basically says, we are taking advantage of them. Someone at Bankers Trust was recorded to actually say that about Procter & Gamble. We are taking advantage of them. Now, what, what that really did was that it told Brooksley Bourne there's no record keeping going on. And there are trillions of dollars that are being traded back and forth in secret, and the government isn't able to control it or regulate it or observe it. There's no accountability at all among all the corporations, and there's like millions of them in the world. No accountability. They can do whatever they want. It's a free market, right? But when Procter & Gamble sued Bankers Trust, this all came out. And Brooksley Bourne realized, hold on a second, there are trillions of dollars here that are gone uh, unaccounted for and nobody knows where they are, you know, only the company, even the companies don't know where the other, what the other companies are doing. This could produce a crisis at some point, all right? And so she said in, in, a, in her report, if something went wrong with the high-stakes derivative market, it could take down the entire system meaning the entire economy of the U.S., which is infiltrated or, or integrated with the whole world. So this could be catastrophic if we allow this to, to happen in a, in, a bigger, in a bigger field than just simply Procter & Gamble. In a sense, she saw herself as putting the hand right there so that it would stop the domino effect of, make, of harming other people. The, the big institutions... 
uh, such as the Lehman Brothers and others, all right, they couldn't pay their obligations to another corporation. That corporation now can't receive the money, therefore they can't pay their obligations to the next corporation, and it's one domino effect after another. And so this is what she could see, the domino effect, if you allowed this to, to go on. She could see a crisis coming. At the same time, Ellen Greenspan told the Congress, the U.S. Congress, the U.S. economy was the best he's ever seen. Free market capitalism was invincible. So he's convinced and he's convincing the, the top people in the financial world things are going really, really good. Meanwhile, Brooks Lee Bourne is thinking things could go really, really bad. And, and this, is, this is why I thought, okay, as I watched through this documentary, I thought, you know what? The Seventh-day Adventist Church is called to give a message because of our understanding of eschatology and Bible prophecy. We were able to see things that the world doesn't see. Okay? Brooksley Bourne was able to see things that Alan Greenspan and others didn't see because she was like really, really smart. Um, and not a selfish, greedy, you know, person just wanting out for money. So she wrote a concept. Now the concept is actually a technical term in that particular world. It's, it's in a sense telling your fellow uh, workers in the government, here's what I'm thinking of doing. So she writes a concept, and it's when there, and, and in that paper, she writes, when there are no regulations, the people will eventually suffer. Now, do you see where I'm going with this? Because I opened up with the question, how can a good God allow people to suffer? Okay, so when I watched this documentary, it made me think about those things and about God. So she's thinking, okay, we kind of need to have regulations to reduce the suffering or potential suffering. Well, Robert Rubin, the Treasury Secretary, advisor to the President on all things finance, hears about what Brooksley Bourne is thinking of doing. And he tells his assistant, Larry Summers, who is at that time, he was called the bulldog because he was mean, he was decisive, he was loud, and, and he was aggressive. And so he's actually the assistant to, to uh, Reuben. And Larry Summers calls Brooksley and says, you're going to cause the worst crisis since the 1930s, the Great Depression. Well, Brooksley Bourne didn't think so. And then other bankers, this is Brooksley talking to the camera, says, 13 bankers tell me to stop and stop now. Stop thinking about regulating anything. Just let us continue doing what we're doing. We're making a lot of money. Don't stop us. And so this gets further and further into talk all around the government, and it's going to be a showdown. Brooksley Bourne will have to confront We'll have to confront a group of people who are not, I'm pressing a button trying to get it, there it is. Uh, the three people, the Reuben, 
Greenspan, and Summers. They're called the President's Working Group, the closest advisors on money and finance to the President. Brooksley Bourne, a lone regulator in some obscure office, is now facing the big guns, okay? Her conscience is leading her. Her knowledge is leading her. She's going to be put down. She's going to be humiliated, but she's driven to, to continue going. So we have these three men. They tell her, they're called the working group, and they told Bourne, Brooksley Bourne, the deregulated market is what brought us to the boom times. Don't regulate it. Don't control it. And Greenspan is just livid. He's angry. He's the most powerful financial guy in the entire world. And when you, I was just reading a proverb yesterday, be careful how you treat kings because if you offend kings, you only hurt yourself. Well, this is kind of like that. Don't offend Greenspan because if you do, you're only going to hurt yourself. And this is kind of what's going on. Greenspan is angry. But two weeks later, she publishes that release stating her intention to bring regulation to the markets. Now, that's two weeks later. That's what happens. They, uh, and here's, here's where, uh, a thing that she wrote. She talked about legislation, which means bringing law to something. They couldn't stop her, so now they bring it to Congress. Only Congress had the power to stop Brooksley Bourne. They only, they're the only ones that had the legal power to do so. And so they work it out to bring Brooksley Bourne before Congress. And now she's answering hundreds of men and women, and she's attacked on Capitol Hill by senators and congressmen. And they tell her there is no evidence to suggest concern. Things are just fine in this world. We're doing just fine, marrying, giving in a marriage, where everybody's just fine. Stop sticking your nose in our business, is what they're saying. And so she testified four times in 1998 before the hostile congregational committees, highly respected men in the world, including Nobel Prize winners. Nobel Prize winners. They wrote books on things and people just adored them. Okay? They testified against her. And I'm thinking as I'm watching this documentary, wow. I wonder how the Seventh-day Adventist Church will stand up against the barrage of scientific geniuses and Nobel Prize winners against the message that we bring to save the world. Not that we save the world, but you know what I mean. And so... Imagine the, the confrontation going on. And so here she is. She's on television. You can see this somewhere on the Internet. And she is asked a very uh, direct question. What are you trying to protect? What's going on with you, Brooksley? What's going on, ma'am? And her answer is very clear. We are trying to protect the money of the American public, which is at risk in these markets. She's trying to protect the little guy. And there's a lot more little guys than the big guys, right? There's a lot of them. And she sees something coming, a crisis coming, and because of her knowledge, she knows what suffering could be in the future. 
She tries to head it off, and this is, this is how she answers. We're trying to protect the money of the American public. That's what we're trying to do. Well, they shut her down. She said, we don't see it. Sorry, we just don't see it. And it, it may be, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I don't want to read motives here, but sometimes people are biased by their own greed and cannot understand the rationale which goes against their greed. It may be that, I don't know, but it's possible, it's certainly possible in, in other areas, maybe this area as well. She did all she could to protect the public. Everything she could, she tried, and she was rendered impotent. She, she could do no more. This, she, this was her job, and they stopped her from doing her job. At Congress level, they stopped her from doing her job. So she said, I'm going to have to resign. I can't do any more. And there will come a time. There will come a time. In this world, where God gives the message, and he gives all that he can, and there's rejection, and there comes a close of probation. Right? A little bit of parallel there, I'm seeing as I'm listening and watching this, this, this documentary. She resigned. Now, that was in, I think, 1998 she resigned. That began two years, two years of the heyday of deregulation. It began in the last two years of Clinton's Bill, President Bill Clinton's administration, and we call it the dot-com Bubble. Do you remember that? Those of you who are old enough. Um, it was, let's remove the restrictions from this company. Let's remove the restrictions from that bank. Let's just allow them to regulate themselves. Think about it. You get a cheese factory, and you see a couple of mice. And you say to Mr. and Mrs. Mice, could you please guard the cheese? What do you think? <laughs> do you think that would be a wise thing to do? The, this is what free market capitalism is. It's, it's allowing those who want the money to guard the money. You know, it's like asking mice to guard the cheese factory. And, and so this is what happened. And then, of course, the dot-com bubble burst and everything else. Now, that was in, in 2001. And then Wall Street, the banks, they could regulate themselves, just ask the mice to guard the cheese. And not only that, but the three men, uh, Reuben and, and Greenspan and Summers, they got on front, time, front page of Time magazine, right on the cover. And they're called the Committee to Save the World. The inside story of how the three marketeers a take of the three musketeers, have prevented a global economic meltdown. Oh, but there's two more words in that title. So far. So that was in 2001, okay? And when things get going, you take away the restrictions, you take away, allow the big, rich, greedy people to do whatever they want, predatory loans and all that kind of stuff all comes in. And so you end up having, by 2007, I'm going to talk a little bit about OTC derivatives in a moment, but the OTC derivatives market grew to $595 trillion dollars. Now, let's talk about what that means, OTC. It means, does anyone know? Just out of, or the, it means over-the-counter. 
Yeah. Over the counter. So let's just talk about what it means to be over the counter. You go to a doctor, you say, Doc, I'm suffering. I have some ailment. The doctor writes you a prescription. You go to the drugstore, to the pharmacy, and they fill that prescription. Why? Because whatever it is that he prescribes for you, you can't buy over the counter. It's regulated. All right? Now, what you can buy over the counter is aspirin and other things that you see in the drugstore. You can buy that OTC over the counter. Now, imagine this. Let's just say you wanted to go to the drugstore and buy some cocaine. And you walk up to the drugstore pharmacist lady and you say, I'd like to have a couple of bottles of cocaine, please. The lady says to you, yeah, that's just uh, two aisles down, top shelf. Just pick it up. Thank you very much. And then you go and you put your cocaine down on the counter. And she says, that'll be $20,000, please. And you write a check for $20,000. Thank you very much. That was over the counter. Do you think that's going to happen? No. This risk, this allowing cocaine to be sold over the counter would be foolish. This is what's happening, what's happening in the financial markets. People were allowed to buy over-the-counter anything they wanted to buy, even if it was risky. And so it, they were doing that to the tune of $595 trillion, which was unregulated and unaccounted for. The government, nobody in charge knew. There's no accountability there at all. And this was by 2007. Well, I remember 2007. Right at the end of it, it began the crash of 2008. Wall Street bet heavily on the real estate boom, where derivatives were the heart. You get a real estate, uh, you, you buy a house, get a loan, get a mortgage, and the mortgage gets packaged up with a hundred other mortgages, and then it gets sold to somebody else, somebody else, and one is derived from the other. And so this is, this is why we had the part of the reason why we had that big boom in 2008, a big crash. But it was a ticking time bomb, just waiting for somebody to say, this is too much money, I can't pay it, and I'm not going to pay it, and therefore the people I owe aren't going to get their money, and the people that they owe money to aren't going to get their money, and on and on, the domino effect. Well, that's exactly what happened. By 2008, the market finally collapsed, just like Brooksley Bourne predicted that it would. It collapsed in 2008. Those of you might remember it quite well. Well, the Dow Jones went down, the NASDAQ went down, those of you who know these kind of things. It all went down just after Alan Greenspan got out in the nick of time. All right? He had just retired before the crisis hit. Those of you who remember this. But Congress had some questions for Alan Greenspan. So they brought Alan Greenspan back to Congress out of retirement, and they had some questions for him. And he said... On, he's on record saying, the premise that markets could regulate themselves? Well, that premise was misplaced. Boy, that was a mistake, you know. I, boy, I, I, I thought we could trust the mice guarding the G's. It's kind of what he's saying, right? And so he, he says these words, and, and I don't expect us all to fully understand 
Greenspan speak because he had a way of talking that nobody understood anyway. Uh, but here's what he said. I found a flaw in the model that I perceived as the critical functioning structure that defines how the world works, so to speak. Hmm. I think I speak for us all when I say, huh? Let's see if we can simplify this because there's something important here. I'm going to highlight particular words in yellow, and then I'm going to read just that, and that should simplify it for us. I found a flaw in the model that defines how the world works. Oh, okay. I found a flaw in the model of how the world works. Okay. We as Christians, Bible-believing Christians, we have something to say about that too. We, we, what was the flaw? Can someone tell me? What was the flaw? Thank you. Someone said sin. Someone said greed. Well, you're both right. Let me just put it here. In, in greed we trust. This is the, the dollar bill. But let me put these words here. Sinful human nature. All right? That's the flaw. That's why you don't allow powerful people who are greedy... Free reign. You don't do that. It's not wise to do that. It only hurts a lot of other people. Okay? Brooksley Bourne knew that. Now, what are the lessons learned? So, I watched that documentary. I couldn't help but think of the Seventh-day Adventist Church with a message of warning to the world in these times. Right? Think of the signs of the times. And, and, and we have a, because of our belief in, in, our, in, in the Bible and Bible eschatology and prophecy and stuff, we have a particular message that's unique that other people don't understand, but we understand it. Why? Because we study the Bible a whole lot, you know, and, and we, we get this. And, and so, but we get it because Brooksley Bourne, even though she was smart and she knew her stuff, she was up against a power force. Uh-huh. A power force. And we as Seventh-day Adventists are also up against a power. All right? And, and the knowledge that we have, God has asked us to bring it to the world to reduce suffering and more things besides that. Um, now we come back to the Scripture reading. Okay, you wonder how long was I going to take before I started quoting the Bible again. Um, I was getting there. Deuteronomy 4, the scripture reading. I'll just read the top part, and then I'm going to read another uh, kind of translation of paraphrase. Moses is talking. He, he recognizes that he's bringing a group of people from slavery in Egypt. They've been wandering around in the desert for 40 years. They're about to enter into the promised land. Now you have to remember that these people wandering around the desert for 40 years, they were slaves or sons and daughters of slaves. They knew no law but the whip. They weren't a highly organized corporation. They're just a rabble, just a, a rabble, a bunch of rabble. And so here in Deuteronomy, says, see, I have taught you statutes and judgments just as the Lord my God commanded me. 
I'm going to read, now I'm going to, I want to read it all, but for the sake of time, I'll, I'll let you read that, maybe look on the internet later, but I want to read the paraphrase of that. Pay attention. I'm teaching you rules and regulations. Brooksley Bourne was a believer in regulations for a purpose. Here Moses is talking about statutes and judgments is the same as rules and regulations. That God commanded me, Moses, so that you may live by them in the land that you are entering to take up ownership, the promised land. They're going to the promised land. Keep them. Keep the rules. Keep the regulations. Practice them. You'll become wise and understanding. When people hear and see what's going on, they'll say, what a great nation. Really? A, a bunch of slaves now become a great nation. Why? Because of the rules and regulations, the standards, the laws that God gives. And they say, what a great nation, so why so understanding? We've never seen anything like it. Yes, what other great nation has gods that are intimate with them the way God, our God, is with us? Always ready to listen to us. You talk about a group of people who are now recognizing a creator God is intimate with them, and all the other nations, they don't seem to have that. I mean, God can speak to them all over the place, I understand. But as a group, they don't have that. And so there's a contrast between God's people, the people of Israel, and the rest of the world. And God wants to use that group, that people of Israel, to be a blessing to the rest of the world. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. So, what other great nation has gods that are intimate with them the way God, our God, is with us? Always ready to listen to us. This is in the Old Testament. I mean, people say God's not so nice in the Old Testament. Well, there's a reason for that. But look at right here. He's intimate with us. He's ready to listen to us. And, and then the second part of that is, and what, other great, and, and what other great nation has rules and regulations as good and fair as this revelation that I'm setting before you today? These regulations are good and fair, and they make up the constitution of how we behave, how we interact, how we set up our are the civil laws, the health laws, the moral laws, and, 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 and the um, ceremonial laws. All those were set up by God to teach the people, to give them wisdom, so that when they obeyed those laws, it produced greatness, and it reduced suffering. Now, what do we conclude from this? Well, it was the regulations... It was the, the, the regulations that turned a group of slaves into a great nation. It was the regulations that taught them how to act as an unbeatable team. An unbeatable team. I don't know what, what games you like to play in sports. Basketball, hockey. I mean, if you're in Canada, it's got to be hockey, right? I grew up playing hockey. And you know what? We had all kinds of rules and regulations in playing hockey, some to protect us and some to guide how we were to play the game. But you know what? When we were taught by the coach, I remember I used to be in a peewee league when I was in grade seven. 
Loved hockey. And, and the coach would tell us, here's what you do. Here's what you do. When this happens, here's what you do. You pass the puck over here and over there. And we won the championship two years in a row. We were an unbeatable team. I look back on that. with Wow, I'm very proud of that. We were an unbeatable team. Why? Because we all agreed that the rules and regulations are something we're going to follow. And we trusted the coach. We trust God, right? So... You're, you're with me. The, it was the rules and regulations that reduced their suffering. Didn't it say, oh, I forget where it is. Uh, but it says there, if you follow my health laws, you're not going to have the same diseases that the Egyptians had. Where is that? In the, I forget where that is now. But it's when, when we follow what God says, that's what God has set up so that we don't suffer so much, you see. Um, so let's go on. Now, Regulation is another word for law. Law. Okay? Law. It's another word for law. Now, I had another answer to the question of suffering. Like, God, why, if you're so good, why do you allow all the suffering? What are you going to do about all the suffering, Lord? And now I had, as I thought about it, read the Bible, and after I watched that documentary uh, from the front lines, public broadcasting system, I had now had another answer for the question of suffering. That answer was, God introduced law to minimize suffering in the world. That's a God of love who does that. Law proceeds from love. And the suffering that would inevitably arise in a sin filled environment the law that God introduced was the Ten Commandments and even the Golden Rule now just imagine with me let's just say everybody in the world actually obeyed the Ten Commandments let's just say would you have any need for locks on your door why thou shall not steal no one's going to steal from you if no one committed adultery ever can you imagine the amount of emotional suffering that would now not be because people obeyed that commandment? What about the commandment, thou shalt not kill or thou shalt not do murder? Wow. There are literally millions of people being killed every day. Can you imagine the suffering that they went through and that their family goes through because they lost a loved one? To, to, to violence, and, and the revenge is like the domino effect. You kill my brother, I'm going to kill your family, and oh yeah, well, I'm going to kill you, and it just goes on and on and on. And so if people actually obeyed those Ten Commandments, the world would be a completely unrecognizable place today. Completely un- un- unrecognizable. And God gave those commandments so that suffering wouldn't be. That's why he gave them. Now, I want to comment on that a little bit more. But sometimes people aren't quite aware of what the Ten Commandments are. And so, you know, Jesus kind of broke it down. I mean, it wasn't unique to him. Uh, it was actually a, 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 a proverb that came from, or it came from Confucius. But it was around 500 years before Jesus quoted it in the, in the New Testament. But only what Jesus did was a little different. The Golden Rule used to say, whatever you don't want people to do to you, That's what you don't do to them. Jesus, when he got quoted, he flipped that. It says, whatever you do want people to do for you, you actively do that for them. It it, it turned a passive into an active. 
and in the doing of something for somebody else because the guideline is whatever you want them to do for you. That's a guideline, and it's a helpful guideline. Then that gives you a guideline as to how to behave. So it's kind of like a regulation, a law. It's going to help. It's going to help. Well, let's continue on with this. The statutes and judgments, I thought, I'm going to, I'm going to look this up in Hebrew. You look it up. You go to, the, go to the internet, go to BibleHub.com. And then you go to BibleHub.com, you, you, you put in a Bible verse. And there's lots, it's a huge, huge uh, website. Uh, I, you can never plumb the depths of it in your entire life. And, and then you click on INT, or like the, for interlinear. This is what I do when I study the Bible. I read the Hebrew and the Greek, not that I'm all that great at it, but I, I go there, and then you can click on that word, and that word takes you to a definition. And all the times that word was used ever in the Bible in Hebrew or in Greek. And so that's what I did with the word statutes and judgments. You know what I found? I found that that really means prescription. Prescription. We talked about prescriptions already, haven't we? A prescription is when you take it, it results in a safe and just world. Just like when the doctor gives you that prescription, at least theoretically, it's supposed to heal you, right? It's theoretically supposed to reduce your suffering. Well, that's what God has done. This is like a metaphor. That's what God has done by giving us prescriptions, rules, regulations, the law. Why? Because it will result in a safe world, in a just world. That's what God did that for. Well, now there's, there's God, our God, being intimate with us, all right? That, that was that, that picture there. Now, now, going back to that answer, why does a good God allow suffering? What's God going to do about it? God has given us tools to reduce the suffering in the world. He's given us tools to reduce that suffering. Now, we still have suffering. What's going on? Well, law would never be needed if people, especially powerful people, were compassionate. You wouldn't need to regulate anybody if they already loved people and knew what love was and how to love people. You wouldn't need to do any. Law wouldn't even be necessary then. All right? It wouldn't even be needed. But man, if man obeyed God's law, there'd be no suffering. I can you imagine that? I actually pondered that for a moment. Really? None? None? Like, none. That's the answer. None. I actually read this somewhere in the Spirit of Prophecy as well. Uh, uh, but, some, but because of love, because of love, love allows choice, right? God will not force people to obey his law. He won't force them. You know what that means? Suffering is what that means, because of love, right? That's kind of hard to take, but we understand, I hope. Uh, because of love, we allow choice. Choice allows for sin. Sin brings suffering. And so Brooksley Bourne became the enemy because she wanted to protect the people by regulating the powerful. So will maybe you and I become the enemy, because we want to protect the long-term interests of the people we love by talking about law. Because law is love in action. Now there's, so 
I know that as Adventists and as, as a conservative denomination and other denominations as well, we get caught up in law because it seems too restrictive and we don't want to do it. It's like my, you're taking away my freedom. And then those who embrace the law in an unhealthy way obey the law to get favor from God. Well, that's not right either. All right, so we have to understand that law, the law, the doing of the law, emanates from love. If it's not coming from love, it, it ain't even from, it's not even godly, no matter how obedient you are. I mean, that's, that's what it is. I mean, what does it say in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 to 2? If I have love and have, no, if I have all the knowledge, got everything, but have not love, I'm nothing, nothing, nothing else. So love is, love is it. So Brooksley Bourne saw herself putting the hand to block the, the continuing of suffering. After the domino effect, and she wants to stop the domino effect, and that's what you and I have been called to do as well. Now, you might be interested to see what ever happened to Brooksley Bourne. Well, in 2009, she was awarded the John F. Kennedy Profiles and Courage Award in recognition of the, quote, political courage she demonstrated in sounding early warnings about conditions that contributed to the current global financial crisis. Now, since current, that was in 2009. Caroline Kennedy, the daughter of John F. Kennedy, is the one who presented that award. She said, Brooksley Bourne recognized that the financial security of all Americans was being put at risk. By what? Greed, negligence, and the opposition of powerful people. Powerful and well-connected interests. The catastrophic financial events of recent months, again, it's 2009, have proved them, born and another person who got the award, proved them right. They stood up. Brooksley Bourne stood up. She did all she could. Her integrity, her serenity, her kindness, her compassion, and her integrate knowledge and her confidence is what gave her that courage to stand up against the three marketeers and all those Nobel Prize winners. And it turned out that she was right. And if they had listened to her, maybe things would have been a little different. Now, I may be oversimplifying the financial crash. I do understand. There's a lot more things that contributed to it. I get that. But this is the lesson that I get from this particular story. That's why Brooksley Bourne is my hero. Conclusion. Selfish, powerful people cannot be expected to regulate themselves. You can't expect the mice to guard the cheese, okay? That regulation is needed to reduce suffering, okay? That's the tool of God that he gave to us to use. Because human nature rarely changes, we can expect a repeat of history. Hmm? A repeat of history which has eschatological implications. So today, God wants to protect his people by regulating a law, a moral law. He wants to protect, well, he loves his people. Why wouldn't he want to protect them? Selflessness or altruism or compassion, the good stuff, not selfishness, but selflessness cannot be legislated. We know this. You can't walk up to somebody and say, you need to love people or else I'm going to fine you $100. 
It, it, won't, it doesn't work that way. Love has to come from inside. You can't impose it. So we recognize Christ's sacrifice for us and ask him into our hearts. When the creator comes down in the form of a man, humbling himself from like way up there to the form of a man, and then being treated not just like a man, but a criminal man, and then gives a message to us and then dies for us, when he, he's perfect, he's righteous, he's kind, and he still died for us, those, those of us who killed him, in a sense, by our sins. Okay? When he dies for us, taking our place, that melts our hearts. We want to honor him. We want to relate to him. We want to honor what he honors, which is other, his other creation. And so that's why we write, so we recognize Christ's sacrifice for us and ask him into our hearts. This becomes a motivating power to protect us and others from our selfishness and greed. Okay? Because we hurt each other. And God wants to protect us from each other uh, by giving us a law. So God commands me to obey the law to protect you. So I won't steal from you. So, so I won't hurt you. He gives me a law and it protects you. But he gives you the same law to protect me. This is how God works. And he commands, until I just said that, when we all trust that God knows what's best for the world, we can say with Moses what, it's, what we read in the scripture reading in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 to 8. Look at this God. He's intimate with us. He hears us. He's given us these laws. These are righteous. These are fair. These are just laws. And they, those laws make us an unbeatable team. And they reduce suffering. That's what those laws do. I'm continuing my conclusion by ending with these words. That proves that God was, God is, and God always will be love. May God bless you today. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we've pondered your will and your love for us. We've considered how you've dealt with sin and suffering. And we know we've only scratched the surface, but dear Lord, help us this Sabbath day to ponder your love and your law. What role are you calling us to fulfill in this world? As I think about the metaphor, the parallels to the Brooksley Bourne story. Where do you want us to be? How do you want us to act? What laws do you want us to keep? Lord, I pray you make that clear to us. And I thank you, dear Lord, that you've given, given us yet another reason to share with people why you can be loving and still allow suffering. But you've got a plan. And I thank you, dear Lord, for that plan. In the name of Jesus, amen. May God bless you.